This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. This is Season 6 of Office Hours, and our theme is to know wisdom. The virtue of wisdom is essential for every Christian, but the absence of wisdom might be more obvious in one vocation than it is in some others. The pastoral ministry. Consider the several public ugly scandals in which televangelists have made evangelical Christianity notorious to the public. Chances are that you've been through a church split or some other major issue in a congregation, or you know someone who has, and that the pastor has played a key role in that episode. Dennis Johnson is Professor of Practical Theology at Westminster Seminary, California, and he's here to think together with us about the importance of wisdom in pastoral ministry. He's been a pastor himself since 1973, and he's taught here at Westminster Seminary, California since 1982. He's the author of several books, most recently the Reformed Expository Commentary on Philippians. This title, along with other faculty titles, is available through... The Bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Dennis, and welcome back to Office Hours. Thank you, Scott. Good to be back with you. Well, in this season, we've been asking everyone to give their working definition of wisdom, and I know you've done that before, but just in case the listener has not been hanging on every syllable that we've said all season long, give us a refresher. I think of biblical wisdom as know-how not just knowledge, but knowing how. It it seems to tie together the way the Bible talks about wisdom ranging from anything like the craftsmen that assembled the tabernacle, who are described as having wisdom, to Solomon's knowing how the human heart works and being able to discern that difficult legal case early in 1 Kings when he's presented with two mothers, both of whom claim that the living child is theirs. He knows a mother's heart and knows that a mother would rather have her child be raised by another woman than to have the child die. It's knowing how to live effectively, successfully, ultimately as the Bible describes that, which is for the glory of God. So it involves discernment, it involves seeing through surface appearances to see reality that doesn't necessarily appear as we glance at it on the surface. And it looks far into the future because it trusts God's promises for the future. Know-how, we'll make it that short, know-how. It's a complex set of skills. It is that involve more than just the intellect, right? That involves perception, involves certainly the intellect, but uh, also other faculties. Um, So, so it's a comprehensive thing. And that's why I keep asking uh, you fellows to give us your working definition of wisdom. And it's interesting how much overlap there has been between the various definitions. There's some, some differences, but a lot of overlap. So I, I think that's interesting, and I, I hope it's helpful for the listener. How, has your definition of wisdom changed at all since we've been thinking and talking about wisdom so much this year? I think over a number of years, my definition has changed in that I tended, I think, at the beginning of my ministry to think of wisdom as almost equivalent to knowledge, nothing much more, mainly intellectual. And I think over the years, I've come to see how much it does involve practice in knowing my heart and others' hearts 
looking at situations and much more reflection on it. And ultimately, it has to grow through obedient, trusting response to situations. So I'm not sure that it's changed a lot as we've thought so much about wisdom in this particular year, but I certainly think I've learned more about that, more than cognitive, more than intellectual dimension of wisdom over the decades. Self-knowledge yes. is a huge component yes. of wisdom, to which I've been giving more thought. When I first encountered Calvin's comments about you know whether we need to know ourselves first or God first, he says God, but he clearly takes self-knowledge as something important. And when I first encountered that at age 20, I dismissed it. I didn't think, self-knowledge, who cares? I want to know about God. That's the pious thing. That's the holy thing. That's the interesting thing. I'm not very interesting, but God is fascinating. But in fact, however true that may be, it certainly is true that knowing God is more important than knowing oneself, and God is much more interesting than you or I are. That's definitely true. Nevertheless, there is real value in having an honest, sober, realistic assessment of one's own self. There is. I think partly because unless I am willing to and and ready to have the Holy Spirit use His Word to probe my own heart, I'm going to be ignorant of obstacles in me to my really coming to know God better. I'm going to be blind to my blind spots, which is so easy to do. And I really need to have the spotlight turned back on my own heart, which is uncomfortable. At the same time, it's good for me. And it can happen for my good because the one who searches my heart by his word is also one who holds me by his grace. And Mm. that makes it not painless, but in a sense, in a deep sense, safe for me to be willing to look at myself and to uh, to see the bends and the twists that are still needing to be straightened out by the Spirit of God. Now, the remaining corruption. Yeah. And especially for a pastor, self-knowledge is important because there are situations, there are issues, there are questions, there are persons, there are circumstances for which some are able to navigate well and safely, and there are some that cannot navigate those safely and well, safely for themselves and safely for other people in a healthful, helpful way for other people. And so pastors need to have real self-knowledge. They need to know what they can do and what they can't do. And lacking that knowledge, they really do not only put themselves at risk, they put other people and maybe their whole congregation at risk in some cases. I think that's so true. I've been impressed more and more with how integral to biblical wisdom is the theme of a genuine and sincere humility. A humility that gets my own insecurities and ego as much as possible out of the way so I really can focus on the needs of the people that I'm shepherding, the people that I'm counseling perhaps, that I'm not preoccupied with whether I appear to be good and competent, whether they're impressed with me, whether they're not offended by me. Those two things, how I appear and whether they're offended. Meditate a little bit more on that, because that's huge, I think. Well, I was thinking, uh, knowing we were going to talk about wisdom in ministry, I was actually thinking about several biblical texts. The end of James 3, where James contrasts heavenly wisdom to earthly wisdom, and earthly wisdom is characterized by selfish ambition, whereas heavenly wisdom is peaceful and gentle and open to reason and full of mercy and good fruits and sincere. And then I thought about, I think 
possibly James is drawing that description partly from Jesus' description of himself in Matthew 11, where he really portrays himself in the language of Old Testament and Jewish wisdom literature, inviting us to take his yoke upon us because he's gentle and humble. And then I went to 2 Timothy 2, where Paul talks about the servant of the Lord not being quarrelsome, but being able to teach, gently correcting his opponents. And I saw in in all those three that theme that uh, to be a wise shepherd and pastor, again, I need to put selfish ambition my appearance on the back burner. I tend to, as I have tried to know myself, I think maybe there are a couple of extremes that pastors can often go to. Sometimes we think we know exactly what other people need, and we may come across in a, an overconfident, almost arrogant way. Sometimes we're very aware that we don't know what people need. And so we may come across, not just with a genuine humility, but almost with a timidity, fearful that we're going to say the wrong thing, people are going to be angry. That second one is my temptation, uh, typically, to be too tentative, not too gentle, but really too timid. And I've needed to hear what Paul says to Timothy here in 2 Timothy 2, that the Lord's servant is not to get involved in quarrels, that's for sure, and he's to do it gently, but he is to correct. He is to speak truth in love as people need to hear that truth. And again, not be fearful of what they're going to think of him. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. You and I come from a nice people. Oh, yes. Yeah, we want to be nice, right? (laughs) Where niceness is the highest virtue. The worst thing that can be said of someone, where I'm from, and I think you know what I'm talking about, is for someone to say, well, she's not nice. And, you know, everyone knows what that means. No one has to spell it out. It's a deadly social sentence. And yet, niceness isn't exactly in any of the lists of fruit or virtues that one finds in Scripture. Faith, hope, and love, gentleness, meekness, humility, kindness, those are all biblical fruits, gifts, and virtues. Niceness is maybe related to those in some ways, but not exactly the same. Niceness is very worried about what other people think, which is a difficult thing. And then, as you say, there's the temptation to overcompensate and to go sort of blustering into a situation rather than saying, well, listen, you know, what do you need? How can I help you? You mentioned several passages. Maybe it's helpful for the listener if we read a couple of them. James 3, beginning at verse 13, says, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Well, that's an interesting connection there of those two things, meekness and wisdom. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic, which is an interesting and very striking way to characterize that. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Definitely. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So how does that work or what does that look like in pastoral ministry? Well, it definitely involves the pastor as he goes into a situation 
again, taking his ego as much as he can by the grace of the Spirit out of the situation and asking what do the people in the congregation, whether I'm talking about a difficult situation in the whole congregation that could breed conflict or whether I'm talking about a pastoral counseling situation or I'm talking about maybe a reform or a change at the congregation, he's what do they need to hear from God through me in this situation? And it will involve different things at different times. Again, since I think James is kind of building on Jesus' description of himself in the Matthew 11 passage, when you think about how the gospels show us Jesus in operation in terms of different people, always with authority, so not with any kind of timidity, but gentle with those who need gentleness, and extremely firm with those who needed him to address them with hard words, those who were smug in their own self-righteousness. Gentle and humble in heart, that's what he says, that's true about him. But that gentleness is not in any way a fearfulness to speak hard truth to people who need to hear hard truth. Well, no, at Matthew eleven twenty, then he began to denounce the cities right. where most of his mighty works have been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And it's only after that, that in right. verse 25, it says, At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You're absolutely right that those verses that lead into this wonderful, comforting, assuring promise of Jesus' gentleness, his giving us rest as wisdom, but those verses of sober judgment to the cities that witnessed his miracles really blows out of the water our maybe sentimental image of gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Uh, he is gentle. He is meek. At the same time, he speaks exactly the truth that we need to hear because he has such compassion and love for people who are stuck in their unbelief. And of course, he has such passion and zeal for the honor of God the Father that he's ready to speak hard truth, whatever people may respond to that. To those who are stubborn and resistant, he's one way. He speaks law and judgment to the broken, the needy, the humbled. He speaks grace. This all gets to a broader question, which I think has been implicit in what you've been saying, and that is a definition of ministry. What is ministry? And we have how many hours to talk about this? <laughs> Our English term ministry that we read in the New Testament basically reflects the Greek term from which we get the term deacon, diakonia. And it means serving. It means service. It can be applied to the ministry of the word, or as we would refer to it now, the ministry of word and sacrament, as the apostles do in Acts 6. That's their calling, especially to focus on proclaiming the word. Or it can be applied to other forms of service as well. In fact, in that same text, they talk about the ministry of tables, which is a mercy ministry to meet the needs of widows. So, it's a very broad term, but it focuses on this theme that leadership in Jesus' kingdom involves servitude. 
servanthood, we say often, but it's really servitude. It's putting others' needs before our own. And that's the point that Jesus makes in Mark 10, when James and John go behind the backs of the others and want the best places. And the 10 are envious then, because James and John thought of it first, apparently, the best places in the kingdom. And Jesus says, that's the way things work in the world. The leaders are those that have everybody waiting on them, but not so among you. Among you, the leader needs to be the servant, the minister, the one who's caring for others. Because I, the Son of Man, have come not to be served, but to serve and to lay down my life a ransom for many. That's a key text, Mark 10.45 and the verses leading up to it. A key text on serving. It's meeting others' needs as God defines those needs with the gifting that the Holy Spirit provides us and the wisdom that he gives us. Pastoral ministry, a very specific form of that, but other forms of ministry also very important for the whole health and life of the body of Christ. Jesus is the minister par excellence. He is the suffering servant. As you say, you you, exactly Mark 1045. Right, right. And so the pastor, the servant, the minister of the word is in some ways reflecting and imitating Jesus, the servant. That is our calling. That's daunting. Yeah, it's frightening just to say that. It is frightening, but it's true. And it really reminds us constantly that the calling to pastoral ministry is not something that we choose to pursue because we think it will be fulfilling for us or because we think it will be a position that will provide us enough leisure time to do the things that we're really interested in. It's a nice job, and then we can have other time for our <laughs> hobbies. No, it's it's a lifelong calling. Not that we are, you Whoever know. thinks that really has no conception of right. what, right, what right. pastoral ministry is. And uh, yeah, Now, there can be a danger of workaholism in the pastorate, and we don't want to go there. Amen. And obviously, for a pastor who is a husband and a father, a significant part of his ministry has to be to his children and his, fa- and his wife his own family and if he's idolizing the church and enslaved to the church's many programs and neglecting his family he's not being a faithful minister of Jesus Christ but at the same time we shouldn't fool ourselves into thinking that pastoral ministry is a comfortable 8 to 5 40 hour a week job It's critical to get the gospel right because it is the good news of the work of Jesus Christ that is saving. W. Robert Godfrey for Westminster Seminary, California. Uh, We need the whole Bible. We need the whole message of the Bible. We need the help of the law. We need the crushing work of the law. We must never undervalue or underestimate the importance of the law. But it is what Christ did that is saving. And what by trusting in what Christ did, uh, we are saved. It is by receiving the gospel in faith that we're justified and all the other benefits and fruits of Christ's work flow out of that. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His gospel, and His church. When people see the pastor, what they mostly see is a fellow up front talking and maybe under lights. And it, it might look, and everybody's 
ostensibly paying attention. And so it might look like kind of a glamorous, in some cases, sure, <laughs> it might look like a sort of a glamorous thing to be doing. And that might be attractive to someone who really doesn't know what pastoral ministry involves. And, and so here, wisdom and ministry intersect in an important way. Because part of what you seem to be saying thus far is that wisdom really leads to self-denial. And so someone who's seeking to be involved in ministry because it looks glamorous really has no comprehension of the intrinsic death to self that is involved in pastoral ministry. Yeah, that's exactly right. Now, we should say also, along with that, we should remind ourselves that Jesus says death to self is entailed in being his disciple, whatever his calling is to us in terms of our spiritual gifting and service to one another or involvement in the marketplace, whatever it might be, that's true for all of us. But it absolutely needs to be seen in the pastor because it's real in the pastor's life that he's heard and by God's grace, he's heeding this call to shoulder his cross, an instrument of death, and follow Jesus. To stand up in public on the Lord's Day and to try to exposit in 22 minutes or 30 minutes a passage of God's Word to a range of personalities, ages, backgrounds, cultural backgrounds, language groups, all at one time, might seem, without much reflection, as a sort of a glamorous thing. But in fact, it is a kind of ritual public humiliation. <laughs> I mean, when you... How, 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 we speak from experience, don't we? We do. You know, how many times have you or I or other fellows that we know, students, the many students that have come through here who are now outdoing what they prepared to do here, that is to stand in the pulpit and announce the bad news and the good news, how many times have we come out of the pulpit and said, you know, gone and you just want to flee into your office, your study, and, and say, say, Lord, please, you know, graciously make use of that homiletical disaster that just occurred for 30 minutes. It doesn't look like that. It doesn't look like that to the outside eye, but it feels like that on the inside, doesn't it? Most of our sermons are rough drafts. True. And I think the ironic thing is that the ones, at least I'll speak for myself, when I walk into the pulpit thinking, this is the one. (laughs) I have homeless, I've got the text, I'm going to communicate it clearly, and it's going to touch people's hearts because I've done my homework. I put in the hours, and, and those are the ones that in the delivery, for whatever reason, well, no, I think I know the reason. When I'm tempted to trust in my preparation or my skill, then the Holy Spirit is pleased to humble me. Mrs. Johnson says to you, what on earth were you doing? That's true. That's true. That's, That's true. Uh, that, yeah, Mrs. Mrs. Clark more than once has said to me, I hope you had a good time. It was miserable for us. Well, actually, sometimes I realize at the time that it's miserable for all of us, too. But sometimes it's true. And the ones that I haven't had the time to prepare as I should and that I'm almost embarrassed to come and bring forth, those will be the ones that the Lord will surprise me by having two or three or more people come up afterwards and say, Pastor, the Lord really spoke to my heart through that message today. And that's good for me to hear, too, because it reminds me that it's not about my selfish ambition. It's about being serviceable. It doesn't justify lack of preparation. No, you're not commending that. I'm not commending that, but it certainly reminds me that the fruit that comes from the ministry of the Word, as much as I'm called to be a conscientious workman in the Word and communicator of the Word, the fruit that comes is the, the work of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God, not mine. Which is one of the first things that wisdom teaches a pastor, 
that the pastor is not the Holy Spirit. The minister is a servant. He's an instrument. He is a servant of Christ and a servant of the Word, and his job is to give himself preeminently wholly in the exercise of his office to the Word, to die to his own interests. And you do that every time you come to a passage, right? You think you know what this is, and you work on it, and you work on it, and you realize that what you thought it was going to be, it really isn't. It's something else. You're committed to letting the text do its work, letting the Spirit do His work through that text. That's what I mean when I say it's a constant dying to self. And so, self-aggrandizement in this whole business of uh, celebrity preachers and pastors and rock stars that, that people are rightly, I think, complaining about is really, in important ways, antithetical to the essence of pastoral ministry. Yeah. You know, Paul's use of that first century metaphor of a steward Stewards of the mysteries of God, he says in Second Corinthians, has to be impressed on us that a steward is a slave entrusted with his master's treasured possession, in this case, the gospel, the treasure of the gospel. And our responsibility is simply to deliver it. So, the steward is a slave entrusted with his master's treasure, the treasure of the gospel. And our task is to deliver it undistorted, undiminished, with faithfulness, with clarity, to those that the master wants to have it communicated to. And Paul also says in those early chapters of 2 Corinthians that we're doing all this in the presence of God. Mm. We're doing this in the sight of God. He is not an absentee landlord as in one or two of Jesus' parables where the, the, the landlord has gone away, but there will be a day when he comes back and holds the steward to account. Our master is present by the Holy Spirit, which is, again, sobering because we're answerable to him, but also greatly encouraging because through the Holy Spirit, we can, with faithfulness, function as but that means he gets the glory and we don't. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. In the course of your pastoral ministry, how have you and when have you gained wisdom? Not to say that you've gained all the wisdom that you should have or that you want to have, but in what kinds of circumstances have you been taught wisdom? I usually learn wisdom most effectively by doing something really dumb (laughs) and seeing consequences. Oh, so through making mistakes. Through making mistakes. And uh, then one would hope, and by God's grace, it's happened. Uh, Others have gently let me know that there were mistakes. I think of early in my ministry when I noticed that the evening service in our little congregation that I was pastoring was... uh, not the morning service. And having just come from seminary, I knew the remedy for that, that we would put in place of a kind of a traditional evening service with singing and prayer and a sermon, we would put two 45-minute heavy-duty instructional sections to supplement our Christian education in the morning. So, we had a morning worship service, and then I would teach for uh, another hour and a half, basically, in the evening. How did that go? That went... (laughs) Great, for several weeks. And then I began to notice that the attendance was worse than when we had the traditional evening service. And, uh, you know, I was thinking back on that. I noticed that one of our faithful deacons and his wife, who had been very faithful in evening worship as well, uh, were not coming in the evenings anymore. And I went and asked him what had happened. And with really beautiful humility and gentleness, he said, well, pastor, by Sunday evening, I can't absorb that much content. He didn't, I don't know, I don't think he used the word content, but I, I just can't absorb that much. And, and this, I think, was the most telling thing for me. And with two more teaching, in addition to the morning sermon, 
I can't respond as I should to the word in all three of those. And that comment just put something on my horizon that as a fairly new graduate from seminary, I'd forgotten. And that was, it's not just about getting people well taught in history of the plan of redemption or in the great doctrines of the faith. Basically, those were our two classes those evenings. One was flow of redemptive history and one was catechism. It's not just a matter of getting more information into them, but it's calling them to respond with faith and a faith that then works its way out in a glad and grateful obedience. So my deacon, just very gently in explaining why he wasn't up to coming to that intense an evening educational program helped me to learn a lot. We went back to a regular <laughs> evening worship service. Well, yeah, and a Bible study, as valuable as it is, isn't the preaching of the gospel. That's true. And, That's true. And the church is not a seminary. And really? Yeah. Yes, I finally have learned that. I mean, yes. maybe in a metaphorical sense. We do need sense. to teach in the church, absolutely. Yeah. But yeah, it's... But it's not everybody there is called necessarily to the same degree of comprehension. Right. And certainly not in what, in effect, became maybe two seminary classes, a course in the history of redemption and a course in Christian teaching. The um, last thing that I, I want to ask you before I let you go, how... If someone said to you, as I'm sure someone has one way or another, Dennis, what do I do as a young pastor or maybe as an experienced pastor who's been through some really difficult trials in ministry and in the church recently? What do I do to gain wisdom? What first step can I take to begin to reorder my life and ministry in a way that reflects the kind of wisdom that Christ exhibited? You know, I think I would say two things to that. One Ask God to give you wisdom. James says in James 1 that if we lack wisdom, we should ask God. We may ask God with confidence that he will be pleased to give it to us. He won't, the old version says, upbraid us. He won't criticize us for our foolishness, but rather will welcome our acknowledgement that we need to grow in wisdom and to really have a lively sense of our dependence. Again, that's the outworking of humility. I need wisdom. I don't have it intrinsically. And then secondly, I would say listen, and especially listen to elders. In that earlier situation, my elders were loving and just let me go ahead and try this thing because their young pastor was very enthusiastic. And when we regrouped after my conversation with the deacon, we all agreed that, uh, yeah, that wasn't a great solution. <laughs> uh, Well-intentioned though I was. Uh, but uh, the fact that I had in that little church two experienced elders, and then when I was called to another church here in California, four very experienced elders, I learned to listen to them. Uh, it's tempting, I think, especially for young pastors, because we have more theological education, and the elders with whom we serve may not have as much theological education. It's very tempting to think I know better, even sometimes to see their reservations on certain brilliant plans as an obstruction, as a sign that they're not as godly or spiritual or visionary as I am. Uh, that's really foolish to have that attitude toward our elders, uh, because actually one way you gain wisdom by God's grace is you live longer. <laughs> and uh, you, you can't instantly live longer, um, but you can gain from the wisdom that others, especially those who've shepherded the church a long time and know the congregation well, that wisdom that they've gained from just living longer than you have. And it was wise, perhaps, of the elders to give you your head and let you do that See, maybe it'll work out, but maybe it won't. And after then it sort of didn't work out the way you hoped or anticipated, you were more teachable. I was. And ready to say, okay, man, yeah. what, what do we do now? 
And then you were able to come to a good resolution, a peaceful resolution that was good for you, good for the congregation. Right. Yeah, I think that you're exactly right. They were uh, models to me at that point uh, of the gentleness of heavenly wisdom yeah. that they helped me without saying, well, we could have told you so. They didn't quite tell me so up front. They let me find that out on my own, but uh, they, they didn't say, now then, don't try funny stuff like that again. They just really worked with me. So ask God because he's more willing to hear right. than you think. And he's not going to judge you or criticize you as you're maybe suspecting that he will. Right. And then ask your elders. Right. Ask your elders. And therein are two Mm -hmm. sources of real wisdom for pastors. And, of course, the Word. The Word always, when we read it with that readiness to look at ourselves that we talked about at the beginning of this conversation, to have it probe us, to have it show us, as James says, using the mirror image, show us ourselves, then the Spirit uses the Word to humble us, to help us gain discernment, and to help us to see in the long range the long and the bigger picture as well. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.